Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. This is Eric Wright, your host. This is a fun episode because we dig into some really cool data with uh, Dave Russell from Veeam Software. And Dave's uh, both a friend and, and a peer in the industry uh, and also uh, the Veeam team have been doing some really neat stuff with a research report they did, so you're going to want to check this out. In fact, if you want to uh, check out a little bit more about Veeam, then the great thing about them is they're also supporters of the podcast. And it's easy to see what they're doing to give you everything you need for your data protection needs from on-prem to the cloud, to your cloud native, to your SaaS, you name it, they got you covered. Uh, with that, just head on over to vee.am forward slash disco posse. And that'll let them know that you came from the old disco posse podcast and uh, a lot of fun. Anyways, they're a great team, and they're doing some really neat stuff. So dig in. You're going to check out the report that we talk about here, uh, and you'll enjoy this, especially if you're in IT operations or even just in anything. Uh, we talk about a lot of stuff, and you know, Dave's just such a great person to chat with. Second piece, of course, if you want to enjoy some of our other sponsors and, and supporters, then you want to check out Diabolical Coffee. Because when you need the most devilishly good coffee, and you also want to make sure that you're wearing and rocking the most awesome Diabolical swag, this is the place to go. Go to DiabolicalCoffee.com. We've got some really, really neat stuff that uh, is going to be showing up in June. Thanks to good friend of the podcast, you're going to see a limited edition t-shirt from the very unique and amazing Zine Rashidi. He's a fantastic artist and we're going to be featuring him in a limited run of a t-shirt so you're going to want to check that out. All right, let's get to the good stuff. This is Dave Russell from Veeam Software. Dave's got an incredible history in the industry so this is like a fun sort of walk through the Wayback Machine as Dave and I walk through some really cool stuff and you can get some really neat data to learn more about what they're talking about here on the show. With that, Here's Dave Russell. Hey, I'm Dave Russell from Veeam Software, Vice President of Enterprise Strategy. What does that mean? It means I do whatever needs to be done from taking out the trash to making the coffee. But more importantly, I am on with Eric on the Disco Posse podcast. I love uh, the occasions when you get to chat with people who you've had an incredible respect for, for what is being done in the community, in the industry. Uh, and also bonus, uh, you work for, for Veeam Software. So for folks that heard the preamble at the start, you know, obviously Veeam has been a longtime supporter of, of a lot of us in the community uh, as bloggers and, and now have been supporting my, the podcast as, a, as an advertiser sponsor, which is really cool. But we're here not because of that. We're here because you got some really cool stuff that you're doing, Dave, and I wanted to jump in. So for folks that are brand new to you, uh, let's give you a, a proper introduction to people and uh, we'll talk about, we've got a specific report I want to dig into because that's kind of cool. I love survey data and, and seeing where the world is and how tragically messed up it is <laughs> <laughs> and having data to back it up. So, uh, but Dave, tell us about Dave. Yeah. So um, long time backup person started, uh, well, you know, you were both guitar players. I don't know if you knew a guy named Tommy Tedesco. At one point, he was the most recorded guitar player. Luther from Toto probably has him outdone now. But he used to uh, 
get asked, uh, how do you, I know if I'm a professional, meaning a professional guitar player. And his answer was always simple. Well, when was the first time you got paid for it? That's uh-huh. the day, the moment you became a professional. So I guess I've been a professional backup guy since the, I guess, August of um, 89, 1989. So whatever that is, 32-ish some odd years and kind of really never looked back. Always always been a backup, but always around adjacencies around mostly storage. But, you know, one of those people that didn't see backup as a means to an end, saw it as a fascination in and of itself. And then, you know, from... There, did a few different things throughout the career. Actually, not that many, though. Only three different companies I've ever worked for. Well, four if you count the university where I first got paid to do backups. Nice. <laughs> well, and you've you've gone in and out of the the vendor side of the world as well. You've been on the consumer side. You've been on the analyst side. You've you've really come full circle. So it's neat. I love that. It it's uh, something that I enjoy when you see folks that move into either side of that analyst's function. And I've, I've often, I struggled early on with my career when I got into it of like, what is the role of the analyst? Like I worked for a financial services firm. So we literally had financial analysts and we had research analysts. And, and I remembered like I was feeding the research teams for the technology sectors for the investment side and helping them to kind of like dig into stuff. And I thought, Oh boy, this would be kind of neat. But then I saw the amount of hours and the craziness that goes into doing that. I was like, this is a fairly thankless job. (laughs) (laughs) And what's, what's different with that side is that it's purely based on the outcomes of the research and ultimately the investments that are based around it in the true like market and like tech research side of it on the analyst side it's very different in the way that the firms are measured as, as successful and then the people more so differently so anyway so the point i say that is because being able to come in and out it's super valuable because you've lived the life then you provided an analyst function to be able to share with the broader industry what how both the the real living of the life and now the data that backs it and then moving on to the the vendor side it's a it's a neat thing to be now in the b2b you know vendor space and you probably sort of like twist your head back and say boy i've done a lot of different things it's interesting you know i kind of liken it to physics versus applied physics and they're both important but that kind of feedback loop, I think is healthy to experience every now and then. It's almost like a recharging of the batteries, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And it's, and that's what I, I often worry when you see people and they move into this, like, you know, they go right to the end function of analysts and you're like, I kind of want somebody who's got some bruises. <laughs> I, I, that's what I want. To, yeah, I don't well, want to be a purely intellectual effort. They're super valuable people that are that are very successful at doing it but it's like i want to see somebody who bled a bit on the hill <laughs> yeah you know there's there are many different kinds of analysts and to your point you know sort of interesting ideas in a vacuum there can be a place for that however you know i've always thought an important aspect or capability for an analyst to have is is pragmatism you know, so it's one thing to whiteboard, oh, Eric and Dave are going to try to define Nirvana. What could that look like and work back from that? But part of that working back from that better be a healthy dose of, is this, you know, steeped in reality, not just from a technical perspective, you know, political perspective. And I don't mean politics in terms of who's in elected office. I just mean every organization, any collection of people, there's going to be some sort of 
politics going on. In fact, probably many different layers. And when we think about what's happening in data centers today, trying to move faster, you know, shift left, DevOps, DevSecOps, you know, XOps, meaning X for anything you want to put in there before <laughs> the the ops word, that almost shortens the time frame and need for better activities and communications. So therefore, maybe even makes things slightly more potentially political. Yeah, well, it, this is the truth of it. Look, I ran a business continuity program for a major financial organization, like two of them, actually. So I mean, look, mm. I, I don't say the names since like you just dig into LinkedIn, you can figure out who they are. Uh, one rhymes with fun life and the other one rhymes with Raymond James. I can nothing rhymes with Raymond James. So it's easier <laughs> to just say I worked at Raymond James. But the what I've learned very much is that the science of the data recovery and the science of the recovery of, of you know, business and the human aspect of it are, have a, they've diverged, you know, mm. and it's, it's really tough to bring those two things together, which is why like business continuity programs are mostly filled with people who are project managers. And that's because when it really comes down to it, when, when things go sideways, uh, the science isn't going to save you. It, there's a very human aspect to how we do some of the stuff. So this is what's neat. And I, I, I really want to dig into a couple of the data points that you had from the report. And I actually, I've, I've got it here because this is like, oh, I lived this life, Dave. I remember <laughs> this. Getting told like, oh yeah, how do we, we have tier one and we have tier two. And I used to have to do like tier one, tier two, tier three. And like, what's the criteria? And so tier one was like always on, continuously available. Uh, it's diver di it's diversified across infrastructure, uh, distributed so that it's continuously available in the event of a site outage. It's stuff like multi-master replication, stuff like Active Directory, global DNS, stuff like that. That was like you're not you're not restoring that from backup unless you're in real trouble. That's multi-site loss. And then then there was tier tier two or tier one or tier zero, however you want to do it, right? But what happened was everybody says, I want that level of service, right? And like how much does it cost to run that level of service? Well, it's going to cost you $15,000 a month to be able to protect this application in this way. And they're like, that's crazy. Put me in the next tier then. And, and you're like, well, no, 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 no. Tier two is not just tier two for you, it's tier two for the company. And one of the data points that came up that I loved in this, in this data survey that, that your team produced was that when you have 400 applications in tier two, they're mm. no longer in tier two. And this is one of the biggest myths and misnomers is when you like just assign it in a matrix. Well, if you have 200 applications that are in the, in the 24 hour recovery window, you don't. And yeah. this divergence from the tier that you assign it for the individual application and the true understanding of like, can I recover this in time? Uh, so Dave, like, this, if you don't mind, dig into the report and who the source is, because that actually that's very, very helpful for folks to understand kind of where this came from and what was the, the background to the, the research. Yeah. So myself, my colleague, Jason Buffington, who is a former industry analyst himself, longtime storage person, and a, a, essentially a project manager named Julie Webb at Veeam, the three of us worked with a third party. So meaning no one knew that Veeam was out there doing this survey, right? And so we'd started this the year prior, but now for this recent survey, we actually dramatically in 
increased the number of respondents we were going after. So we believe it's the largest ever in the backup industry survey of an N or number of sample size of 3,000 across oh, 28. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so it's a pretty meaningful number, right? At 3,000, we believe it's the largest, 28 countries. And when you have a large enough N or sample size, then you can do some in some cases, some statistically viable cuts, either by geography, company size, or possibly even vertical in some cases. Now, what's interesting is there wasn't a huge amount of variation. We did slice and dice the data, and we looked for where there was any kind of you know outline activity. But the whole goal was kind of like you mentioned at the outset, Eric. You know, in some cases, this is a matter of confirmation bias, which is okay. Nothing wrong with being proven correct if it's a, especially if it's a strongly held thesis, you'd like to have some confidence in that or some right. external data points. But there's always some surprises too. And what I found as an analyst, I would oftentimes take survey data and put that up on, you know, a PowerPoint presentation and talk to it. And I would oftentimes give my analysis, my opinion of it, but the reception from people, if you start with, here's what a global group has to say versus, oh, here's what Eric has to say. And so gather around and just assume that it's true. Yeah. You know, it's it comes at it from a slightly different angle. So first and foremost, we wanted a large sample size. We didn't want it to be, you know, the authors think, or even the company in this case being thinks. So this is what the market thinks. That's, and that's important. There's two very important pieces of what you talked about. And uh, the number one is the sample size is important to get 3000, you know, now I, I think if you're like, if you're a true statistician or researcher, I think it's like 10 K is the mark where it becomes really a meaningful statistical representation of society, but that's way different than enterprise there's no such thing as 10,000 enterprise companies like they're there no right. one fits into this category so it's it's funny when we we get hung on the number but then what's important about it is the relative to the existing pool of research that's out there which is way below 3,000 <laughs> so, <laughs> so very good that you did that and then secondly the fact that it was done through a third-party research Ultimately, you know, they find it where the data went in the end, but it was not gotten under the guise of this is my current data protection vendor who's gathering this data because it can skew the way you answer, right? Because they're like, For hey, sure. I, I heart Veeam, so I'm going to fill in some lots of tens, you know, or whatever it's going to be like, you don't want to skew the data. Um, so yeah, it's, this is big. This is big. This is really cool that, that your team did this. And like you said, in confirmation bias, if anything, I'd say this this doesn't do anything other than prove that the world is not ready if disaster strikes. And there's a brutal yeah. honesty and pragmatism in being able to recognize that because the people that filled in the survey tell their bosses otherwise, right? Or when it all goes down, they'll be like, look, I told you we weren't going to be able to do this in time. <laughs> right. I mean, what's the old joke? You, you probably remember it. I mean, what's your disaster recovery plan? And the answer is an updated resume, because yeah. <laughs> once the business finds out we can't do what they are expecting us to do, you know, there's going to be some problems. Now, when it comes to the, that mixture of things, I, I'm curious, how does this come into play 
when we look at the workload diversity, because this is interesting and I'd love to get your thoughts and pull what you got out of this data in, you know, that we move into the cloud native while the cloud native design and architecture is built for purely stateless apps. And that's the panacea. The truth is yeah. that there's a lot of stateful, basically VMs that got turned into containers in a way. Um, and so it's interesting as you, you actually have data that's going to feed on that side of it as well. And so anyways, I'd love to talk, what's the diversity of the data that you kind of yeah. included when you talk to people? Yeah. And I think, you've kind of netted out really quickly, Eric, why there's still continuity challenges, or let's just even broaden it out. I mean, this is a data protection, meaning backup recovery availability report, but you know, why are there issues in the data center? And it's not because we don't have intelligent people working very hard. It's that they're the number, the variety, the difference of, and the constantly shifting tasks are so great that it's literally, you know, a game of whack-a-mole that's kind of horizontally expanded to where there's more and more things, more variables. And so part of the issue is for the quote average business, and you know, you correctly point out there is no average business, which exactly already starts to answer the question of, well, I guess there's a lot of variety. There's a lot of configuration drift. There's a lot of variance. And so that's why things are difficult in the data center. Some of us have the luxury of our company's going to start out tomorrow. It's going to be Eric and Dave company. And we'll go to, you know, maybe an online place, order two laptops, and we'll subscribe to everything else as a service. Maybe one of us has a printer. That's it. However, most organizations, they still have a Unix box over in the corner. Maybe they've got a couple dozen running really important applications. Heck, maybe they've got, a, you know, a Z series running mainframe apps, very important. However, they've got the other end of the spectrum too, we're messing around with Kubernetes. We're actually getting ready to go in production. We have half a dozen SaaS applications. We're in two or three public hyperscaler clouds. We're still trying to look at moving over COBOL off the mainframe into some other proprietary application equivalent and all points in between. So now all of a sudden you throw all of that into the mix and you say, if the worst happened, meaning full on disaster recovery, we had to bring all this data, all these applications, all that infrastructure back as rapidly as we could. The number of tasks involved are, are literally mind boggling. And that's where I liked your tiering analogy. Cause part of, I think most people's disaster recovery plans, it's kind of like the health club model, meaning, you know, all whatever, 2000 people that are members of this gym surely will not show up at 5 PM on a Monday that's right. you know, to work out. We're, we're going to bet on that. However, we're in the opposite game. When you're in an engineering mindset, you actually literally have to be preoccupied with the worst case scenario. Yeah. It's uh, I've got the, the interesting combination in my own strangely Canadian and broken brain is that I, I understand where it's going to go awry and I, my friend used to describe, he says, cursed to see the future, but unable to do anything about it. You're the one mm. that's sitting in those rooms going like, okay, folks, I I know what it takes to recover these environments. And it assumes there's a very human aspect to the recovery process and to the backup, like just the day-to-day -day operations, right? Yeah. 
And we used to even get this all the time. People are like, oh, I've, I'm using like real time or near zero replication between locations. You're like, perfect. And I'm like, you know what happens when you suddenly delete a thousand files off that data store? <laughs> it near zero replicates deletions too, right? Like it, so, well, guess what? You, that's why we have CDP. That's why we have like all sorts of ways in which we can sort of stage through the recovery processes. But it's funny that they just think like, oh, recovery and snapshots are a great way to like talk about being protected. Like, no, it's protected for a single scenario. The scenario is very specific. And in fact, there's a lot of reasons why that's a bad scenario to, to be focused on because like if you, if you suddenly just lose a file, okay, cool, we can go, we can usually get it from a couple of different ways. But if you suddenly get hit by a, a bot, or a virus yeah. or something and it suddenly just goes spewing across every one of your data centers in every protected version of your stuff that's why offline backups and all these other ways like that's why it's a multi-tiered you know attack surface that you have to have as a protector right definitely you know what uh, it's it's like security me meaning not even just in the data center i mean your home life well you might have neighborhood watch signs up. You might try to be diligent about locking your doors. You might have lights on, motion detector lights, you know, various things in other words, right? It's not, it's never just one thing. And if I actually hit a punchline of one of the um, interesting points in this survey, we kind of titled the, the, one of the slides, you know, why are we talking about backup in 2021? <laughs> and Part of the reason why is because there's a lot of things that go wrong. When we asked people, hey, tell us a little bit about your unplanned outages in the last year, in the last 24 months, the short story is it wasn't like, oh, well, if we just make sure networking's going okay, everything is going to be smooth and perfect. Or there wasn't any one thing. In other words, it was a multitude of things. And kind of in the middle of the list was cyber, not that cyber threats aren't incredibly well understood and properly respected for the damage they can cause it's the, the point was it's middle of the list because there's so many other things happening from application errors operating system patches with middleware yeah. you know yes there are networking issues despite improved mean time to failure for components components still do go down and it just the list goes on and on so the trick is if you think about backup and recovery, historically, we only restored three to 5% of any of the data we ever backed up. But you know, if you want to say the trick, what, why did you do that? Well, because you didn't know which three to 5% and you didn't know what point in time you might need that data back. And then along comes something like ransomware that literally could take your attack surface to 100%. So there's reasons why this is still very challenging in the data center, why we're still talking about backup. But I loved your point about it's it's a layered capability, you know, in terms of both data protection and data capture, but also in terms of our response. It, nothing exists as an island. And the last thing I'd say really quickly is if this research has really reminded me of anything now doing it a couple of years is that best practices often remain best practices for a long period of time, right? Uh, that in, far, in fact, I'd almost say that's one of the defining characteristics of a best practice. Does it hold up? If it was a best yeah. practice for one month, then I'm not sure if it, it might've been a good idea, but maybe it's not a best practice. However, you know, your point about, hey, guess what guys, replicating something to two different locations 
three bad copies of data does not equal one good copy of data. That's still a best practice that holds true. The very interesting part that I've experienced firsthand too is like to get to tier one, you have to be automated. And that was a rule, like in order to get to the tier one service, which was sub four hour, uh, like ultimately, like it was at the absolute outset was sub four hour RTO and sub five minute RPO. It had to be Active Directory, DNS, you know, those like big distributed systems that were globally distributed. So you had to make sure they were available everywhere. You still had to say four hours, like, let's be reasonable. Like things can still go very wrong, yeah. even though the data is, and that's, it always blows people up when you say RPO and RTO are different. You're like, why do you have an RPO of five minutes, but it takes you four hours to get there? I'm like, because this point it stopped recording was five minutes. And it takes me four hours to get the system back online to be protected. Like, so stuff wasn't happening. We weren't updating things during that time. So that's this weird sort of people really get hung on like that nomenclature of RPO and RTO sometimes. But like my hard and fast rule was if it's if it's gonna be tier one, has to involve full automation. And 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 you like there's no getting away with it because at the moment you needed a person. Well, that person's working on tier two and tier three and just making sure the environment's alive. They can't be manually doing anything for those tier one applications. And it's funny, like, obviously your team has gone over the course of the time that I've been working with Veeam, like it was originally just purely data protection. Then it was physical, it was like virtualization. Then it yeah. was multiple hypervisors. Then it was adding physical servers, then cloud. Then you guys bought Castin, so you're covering the cloud native game. You got Vidro, you know, uh, and this is really cool because then I was like, ooh, like that's it. This is the secret sauce. You already have the data and then you then automate the and orchestrate the recovery processes and you're like fantastic this is this is where you want to be so it's i i talked to danny allen uh who's the yeah, cto yeah. for folks that don't know danny uh that was a great episode and and really this idea of the bottom-up approach like solve solve this one problem at large of general data protection and then now do more with that data which is where like Vitro is like such a differentiator because everybody else was like, I'm going to totally just do real time only or near zero replication. Like, well, what if I needed to take an older snapshot or an older instance of it or a couple of different ways? Like they never had that data. So it was always like, oh, we can only do real time or nothing. Like, oh, that's not good. Yeah. Yeah. If you think about what, backup is or let's just call it with sort of availability so we can throw replication in yeah. there continuous data protection is maybe a subset of replication traditional backup and recovery the software goes grabs the bits somewhere in between you know leveraging storage array based snapshots but that's instrumented from a backup application so you have application consistency and to your point maybe higher levels of automation as well everything i rattled off and more all has a role to play. You know, it's like the symphony. There are no bad instruments. You know, there, there are times when you need cowbell and there are times when you need the entire string section. And then, you know, that is where the conductor, the orchestrator, and obviously a good score. So good score might essentially be what's your recovery plan. You know, this, this is how we want the script to go. The conductor is there to try to make sure that 
things are, you know, you can make tiny course corrections in real time. And to your point, stuff's going to go wrong. Stuff's going to happen, right? So then we need to be able to react to that. I think that's why automation really does come into play. And in fact, you know, we asked both sort of the, what's frustrating you with backup and why would you switch solutions? And then what do you think is the answer? Meaning what does a modern or innovative solution look like to you? And what's interesting is automation was the top of the list for what an innovative modern protection solution would look like. You know, and I think that's pretty reasonable if we think about it, because you know, we want to have a system that can essentially look after itself. We don't necessarily want it flying on autopilot 100% of the time. There's going yeah. to be oversight, much like the cloud. You know, it's still your data. You're still responsible. Just because you have automation solutions doesn't mean you're not still responsible. But it's to give you an advantage. It's to give you that leg up when time is of an issue. And the the other thing, though, now if I go back to what were the frustrations, I'd started some research almost 12 years ago now about why people actually switch backup vendors. And I noticed that the top three reasons remain the top three reasons year after year. They all began with the letter C and sometimes the ordering one, two, and three switched slightly. But here we are. You know, now we've got between two different years, about four and a half thousand data points about why people switch their backup products over a two-year period. And both years tied for number one is, I just want my backup success rate to be higher. Yeah. And that's pretty, I mean, on the one hand, that's shocking as an industry to say that. You think it's like 2021, what the hell are we still arguing about this for? (laughs) Yeah. You know, oh, I'm sorry. I meant I wanted a car that was reliable. Do you have any of those? I, I should have been more clear. You know, so you think, gosh, how how is it that that's the case? And I think it goes back to the complexity of the environments, the the expectations. Uh, the last thing I'd quickly say, though, that when you were mentioning the the tiers, we're seeing at least the business expectation of those tiers collapse. And I see it in my own life. I mean, I I actually do have a couple HDDs. I do have an external eight terabyte that I back up to. I have two different external multi-terabyte HDDs that I rotate through for backups, but everything else is flash or solid state yeah. in my environment. And so because of the economics and the amount of data involved, it's reasonable now to start to collapse what in the past might've been multiple different tiers of primary storage. But as a result of that, we see that the expectation too, meaning when we asked, oh, Eric, what's the difference between the expectation for your mission critical applications and your quote unquote normal applications. And what we're seeing is those are, are shrinking further and further and meaning collapsing the, the Delta, the gap is not that great. So another way to say it was, oh my gosh, all data is important. And the business expects all data back very, very rapidly. That's another reason why availability becomes more and more challenging because the rules changed all of a yeah. sudden, you know, we score things differently. Now the expectation is different than it used to be. Yeah, it's, uh, but to, to go to your analogy about there's no bad instrument, I can tell you that there's there's a bad instrument out there. And I, if you, have you ever heard the classic joke? I got a friend that used to play one, so I can say this. What's the difference between an oboe and an onion? No one cries when you cut up an oboe. Oh. <laughs> but hey, nice. uh, that's my that's my musical joke for the day. Um, now, and so the other thing that's what taught me that this is a very human process around expectation setting and and business objective being the most important outcome 
not the speeds and feeds. Like those things matter. We have to right. do the thing in the time with a certain amount of technical acumen. We got to get that. But we also got to understand it's always to map to a business outcome. It's always, 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 right? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, as you know, technologists, you get excited by the technology and rightly so, and that's good. I mean, you want to have passion for what you do. But to your point, you know, you have to understand this is just implementation. These are, are tools to try to achieve a favorable outcome. And that outcome, to your point, is in a business context, which makes it interesting because literally any even modest-sized business could have hundreds, if not arguably thousands of different business outcomes or subcomponents for their major objectives. You know, if they're publicly traded, returning shareholder wealth is the top objective. Great. Right. That maps down to about 10,000 different actions, though, to help support that overall company mission. And that's the part where I think why we're seeing a real change in the availability game. I'll say what's fascinating to me around backup is the landscapes keep shifting because of technology. You know, it used to be, okay, backup might be done once a day around midnight to physical tape. If you're a big enough company, you might have a company like Iron Mountain, meaning a cartage service, come pick up that tape, take it away to someplace safe, fireproof, you know, disaster proof, et cetera. But now you fast forward and, well, boy, if I am writing data, backup data, multiple times, maybe even an hour to now getting into every few seconds, and I'm writing that on very fast, accessible, solid state drives, and I'm simultaneously copying that off maybe to a hyperscaler target for safekeeping, wow, that speed, that capability, those different kinds of copies, data living in different places now affords me new opportunity. And that's where the business context comes in. Okay, that copy I just sent of the backup I just took, maybe there's an online cloud service that can go and do a better job or a deeper scan from a, a cybersecurity perspective than what I can do on-prem. And because it's a copy, I'm not messing with production. Yeah. Oh, but... By the way, maybe if I want to run, you know, a quick test on something, I can do that from my local copy on a flash drive, not mess up production. So I kind of getting excited here because I'm seeing how all of this infrastructure that we're putting in place for the just in case something bad happens can be leveraged for, hey, nothing bad happened. In fact, something good just happened. I just made a better business outcome leveraging our quote unquote insurance policy for a better business decision. The other thing that's my favorite phrase that people often forget as they're building their business continuity plans. It's funny, and we call it business continuity because disaster recovery was like, it sounds like a bit dark. Yeah, too <laughs> negative. So <laughs> we had to call it BCPDR, so business continuity, because that's really what it was about, right? It wasn't about surviving disaster, it was about continuing business. And that made sense, I, I get that. But then we had this funny thing of you test the plan, don't plan the test. And people Amen. fail this all the time where it's just like, okay, they'll spend eight weeks planning a, 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 a failover. And you're like, yes. what if it just happened right now? <laughs> yes. Well, I used to get really saddened. I mean, I almost said frustrated, which is a true as well statement, but it really is more sad than anything else when people would say, we're getting ready to prepare for our disaster recovery drill. Uh, what would you recommend? 
And boy, you really have to choose your words carefully because well, what I'd recommend is you did things right ahead of time. That would be you know best practice. In other words, right? Did you follow the plans? And if you didn't, was it because your plans as documented were incorrect? They were obsolete. You had configuration drift, or it's because ah, we didn't really have the time or resource to do that. You know, but. The frustration for me was always, well, we're trying to make sure we can have a favorable outcome. But the problem is if you game the system, you haven't really proven anything. Meaning when I worked for a company, uh, let's see, I'll do the same you did. It rhymes with itty bitty machines or has the same uh, same <laughs> three letters. It's kind of like how, but just one different in the alphabet for each of those letters. They would tell us, hey, Eric, tomorrow when you come into office, do you come in before 9 a.m.? Because approximately 9.03, there's going to be a fire drill. And you remember, your station is E61. That's Elephant 61 yeah. in the outside area. Make sure you assemble there. Lo and behold, the fire marshal and his team is out the next day. They're doing a stopwatch test. Everyone got out just in time. But, okay, what did we actually prove? Now, that's fine if everyone actually cements in their mind. Here's my emergency assembly area and et cetera. But... All we've proven is that if we do everything perfectly, we might have a good chance of passing. That I always told people, there's no such thing as a failed test. You yeah. learn something, you know, and thankfully you learn something before the business says, no, 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 no. The reason we're reverting back to that backup point isn't because we're doing that out of exercise. It's because we've either lost or lost confidence in our primary data. So therefore that backup really is now our only copy. It has just become our primary data. Yeah. It's a, like Mitch Hedberg, a famous comedian uh, who we lost too early, but he says, someone asked him, and said, you, you got to get out of the way. You're in the standing in the fire door. And he says, man, unless I'm a table, I have legs and I'm flammable. So I will get out of the way. Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> you can trust me. <laughs> like as if, as if when a fire hits, you're going to be like, no, I'm good. I'm just going to hang out yeah. here. You know? I was chilly anyway. This is a chance <laughs> to warm up. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, you know, the business notion, I think that's worth double clicking on because I, I like that a lot. We asked a lot of technical questions and those out, out, comes, you know, answers are always interesting, but I, we asked digital transformation questions and we asked questions about, you know, how can you leverage data and where do you think you're at in that journey? And really that's the other key takeaway that was interesting to me. Like we're all on some sort of journey. We're all somewhere on a continuum of a cloud journey. We're all on some sort of continuum of a digital transformation activity. And some people here DX digital transformation and they kind of roll their eyes. Other people get kind of excited yeah. about it. I honestly get excited about it because to me, I mean, there's probably a hundred definitions. I just simplistically say, what's digital transformation? Well, anything that improves customer intimacy and that customer could be a partner, that quote customer can be an internal employee. It could be the ultimate paying customer, but it basically just says, are you doing a better job about providing goods or services to your constituency, to this ecosystem. And I can envision ways technology can support that. So I actually get excited being even just a backup person. Well, how is that not a good thing? And yeah, let's let's go leverage these copies of data that thankfully we are not flexing into usage you know, every single day. Thankfully, it is typically three to 5% of the data we're restoring. No one wakes up and goes, hey man, you know what's really kind of a bummer? 
there were no trees that hit my house last night. That yeah, means my right. home insurance was just a complete waste of time. No one ever says that. Well, the, and this is the the interesting thing that we we wanted to be invisible. We wanted to be like under the covers. Like, look, it's it's true when you look. I mean, look at the quarterly filings of any public company. It doesn't say like how many workloads they have and how they protect them and how many times they did their uh, their responsible recovery tests. Like, it's it's very much oxygen services. Like, yes. it is a core part of the business that we unfortunately don't realize how much effort it takes to make it invisible and automatic and, you know, understood that we can do it if, if it really came down to it. And look, I've actually been through legitimate disaster recovery and it's wild because it very much tests your metal as a person, especially as an IT organization to make sure that the business is like you are servants i and it, not in the in the way that you are there to the restaurant owner is the one that's got to talk to the press yeah and you're the staff like you're the people that are going to that are wiping down the walls that are making sure it's ready like it's it's so important to be just feeding the the overall system and then yeah making sure that you can protect that front face, which is the business. Because if you don't protect that, then it won't be there a quarter later, right? Like it's a huge impact. I think it's a big impact because in some ways I almost feel like the stakes are higher today. You, know, you take the last whatever year plus that most of us have been involved and affected by the global pandemic. And you think about how we do business just in our personal lives you know, if you go to the typical website that you're used to going to for a good or service, and there's a problem, the website's down or, you know, timed out, you, you just did some complex order, you know, maybe it was like, I'll just use an example of a grocery order. You put in 13 different things and you had to hunt and find the exact margarine that you were looking for. This all took time. If that system then collapsed and then you refresh the browser and said, you have a shopping cart of zero items. You might be frustrated enough to go look for an alternative. If that alternative, because maybe you you would do it right that second. You're like, look, I need to make dinner tonight. This is why I'm ordering this right, right now. I need this stuff in you know like three or four hours, not in three or four days. Let's say you had a very favorable experience now with this secondary supplier. They just became your primary supplier in, in all likelihood, right? There is no going back in that instant. One bad moment, literally less than a minute, only five people affected maybe in the entire shopping experience. But if you lost all five of them, uh, you know, this just has a snowball effect, the likes of which we didn't see in business, you know, for really for inception of IT on until much more recently. So that's the part that concerns me is that I always say the business expects that they're far more resilient and far more available than they truly are. And, you know, in, in some cases you could say ignorance is bliss, but it's really not because if that all is a house of cards and comes crashing down, it would be horrible to say, well, we actually did have the opportunity to verify this, or we actually yeah. did know that we were kind of running a risk here and we didn't do anything about it. 
Yeah, and you look at that, that poor Teco is looking at this to-do list of like, remember to turn on like some enabled script in order to back it. Like, ah, I shut that off because I was working on the power, this really neat power CLI thing that I had to fix up first. So I shut off the auto recovery of some goofy thing, right? And like that, that stuff is there. All There's all these yeah. parts constantly. And I remember those. It's like... It, and that was the same thing too. When you classify the tier for a workload or for an application, ultimately is really what you're classifying. You're saying that this thing has, number one, it has a, a recovery period that I need to be able to get it back for. RPO, RTO, cool. Well, it has underlying dependencies. And this is the other thing I, why I would have to draw this big matrix for people. And I would say, look, if you have an RPO and an RTO of in, you know, you're in the four hour, five minute range, cool, you're fully recovered. Where's the data for that application? It's in tier two. Guess what, kids? You're in yes. tier two now. Because if your dependencies in tier two, you're in tier two. Like that's how it is. If your right leg is really fast, like Usain Bolt, but your left leg isn't, you're not Usain <laughs> Bolt. <laughs> no, that's a great, great point. Because sometimes if I think about it historically, people would say, you know, the the ultimate application, and maybe that was a database. So they'd say, what's really most important? Oh. SQL Server or Oracle or whatever it might be, and specifically this this one or this fleet, because that's customer facing, that's most important. But that doesn't actually achieve an end-to-end -end business objective. You know, maybe that was an order processing system, but if you don't have the web-facing middleware, if you don't have the web farm up to actually accept customer orders, then you really haven't achieved much of anything. So yeah. it is that end-to-end -end notion. I think I do see progress in that regard, you know, things like a business impact assessment where people are, are looking at, okay, I need ultimately this service online. Let's trace that backwards from what are the many different components, many different kinds of servers, probably many locations of that compute and that data that all need to be brought online. I think we are making some progress in that regard, but it's a, it's a never-ending journey. As you mentioned, you know, containers and Kubernetes and we're refactoring applications and some are just lift and shift, but some of it's being written from the ground up. Some of it's net new, meaning it's going to be born in the cloud or born in the container. Yeah. Oh, by the way, the legacy didn't entirely go to zero for most of us either. So now we've got to handle both sets of these activities, the new and the old. Well, and this is the, the complexity increases. It doesn't yes. decrease. So yeah. the resiliency may increase, but that means as much as people say like, well, I'll just run managed Kubernetes, like fantastic. Guess what? You need a network to connect to that thing. Yeah. Where's your, okay, so you've got, let's assume, let's assume for a moment, you've done it all right. You've got a beautiful stateless application that's distributed. It's already architected so that it goes into multiple pods across multiple clusters. And you've solved the RBAC problem, which is most likely not really solved. You just, you're working around it. You've done all these things and you've, you've built the ultimate app, your Netflix, right? Like you've done it. I've got this thing that I can distribute everywhere. You've got the data distributed. You've got it all sorted out. And then the whole thing goes sideways because your network VPN goes down and you lose access to your GitLab server because that's where the code comes from for your right. completely distributed Kubernetes cloud native application. That's your dependency and your dependency is not there, right? Like, so this is, even as much as we have this fantastic opportunity with these new architectures and application patterns, 
it's vastly more complex. And result is, and also you can't get there. And like you said before, the journey, we're on a journey. This is a long journey. Mm -hmm. Tell people, right? So P to V's, and I always tell people, P to V's were a, a terrible idea, right? It's a fundamentally bad thing to do. Like you're just taking it, you're making it pretend that's in a different spot. It's like, it's the Truman show for a virtual machine. You just like shove it and you move it over here and you give it its belief that it's in this compacted world that it has to, that's all it cares about. And then what we did was said, okay, we're now we're going to re-architect. We're going to rebuild it as a virtual machine. We're going to do the right things. Okay, cool. And I'll say that even though P2B was a terrible idea, we needed to do it to get there. Yeah. It's a stepping stone, right? Yeah, exactly. I have the fun. It's always the fun for the part. Like the good thing about testing out new video gear is that your video gear doesn't act like it expects to you. So I, when you're watching the video of this on YouTube, it's funny because you can see me keep disappearing every like nine minutes or so. I don't even know what it is, but um, for the audio, easy on the audio. It's, uh, it never shows up. But uh, so just to continue that thread though, uh, you know, we've, we've got this idea of, of business continuity and then the human side of it and the process around it. This is why the automation piece is, is super critical. And I want to dig into the data that you, you got out of it to hear like how people really are where they are on the automation journey. And that like I said, because this is the thing when a real example happened where I drove out of the office and I pulled out of the parking lot and I swiped my card in the parking lot and it, the little arm raises up and then I pull out onto the road and I'm like, ah, oh, the lights are out on the, like the street lights. And I was like, oh shoot, well, it's flashing, you know, so I know what to do. You wait until it's your turn to treat like a four-way stop, turn left, go out. And I see four guys that are working on like a phone box. Yeah. And all you think is like, ah, oh, those idiots cut the power. <laughs> and like, <laughs> And then I go and I turn on the radio. Oh, that's weird. I switch stations. I'm like, okay, this is really weird. I'm like, I have no idea. I switched to AM and it's like, you can start to hear stuff coming through and you're like, this is the emergency broadcast system. Like it was the entire Eastern seaboard was down. This was, uh, I forget what year it was. It was in like the late nineties. And just by sheer luck, I got out of that parking lot. If I hadn't gotten past that goofy lifting arm, I, my car would be trapped there. And oh, wow. Stuck. So I just happened to pull out. And at the moment that happened, the power went down from everywhere, from New York, New Jersey, Eastern Quebec, Ontario, gone. You know, that's a, fascinating real life example though of the kind of interdependencies and intricacies and interconnectedness that we've been describing within a data center yeah. now you take that out into real world and something that happens or doesn't happen in new jersey now affects new york connecticut potentially you can keep going on down the yeah. region and it's not an isolated entity anymore you know it exists within an ecosystem and I think that's some of the results we saw back as well as people said, you know, when I think modern, as it relates to data protection, I think automated, I think cloud, or at least ability to leverage the cloud. I think about backup existing in an ecosystem of other tools, which might be security or forensic analysis tools. So it's really a notion of, okay, I think I get what backup and recovery has been. 
it's shifting a little bit. And oh, by the way, as it shifts, then it needs to be a different kind of citizen within your data center ecosystem. And this, this shifting, this notion, we've used the phrase continuum a couple of times. You know, this explains why IT is, is still difficult. This explains to me why 10 years from now, I think we still have specialized administrators. That role may look a little bit different. Some may be more generalist than specialist or specialist in the same areas that they were in the past, but there's no getting around that the interconnectedness of these various and probably ever-expanding technologies and new next-gen applications are always going to require some amount of oversight, are always going to be moving along at a faster pace than the business, if left to its own devices, could really hope to keep up with. Yeah. That's why availability still matters. And even the best laid plans in that particular case was, so I worked for a large organization. So we had, you know, what a lot of data centers would have. We have an automatic immediate switch over to battery, which has a two hour protection so that we can immediately turn on the generator. So like the moment that it turns on, it goes to battery, the generator starts up and we have eight hours of fuel to run the data center in order to, survive until the next event. Well, that's great. But what happens when that event lasts for 67 hours? Hmm. And you think, well, no problem. We've got to deal with a gas company. Well, guess what? The entire city's down. And who comes first? Hospitals, right? Like, so your, your deal with the gas company is a best efforts deal, as it turns out. Right. And we had the, my favorite thing is like, you know, I'm in the data center because like, so I go all the way, I literally live like an hour away from the city. So I drive and I'm like, I gotta make sure the family's okay. So, you know, like I'm literally barbecuing baby bottles to like, I've got a tiny baby. You've got to deal with all this stuff. I go through this whole process and then I'm like, okay, I got to now turn around and go back. So the very human side kicks in. You're like, holy crap, I've got to leave everybody in the dark literally and, and go to work because now I've got this weird responsibility. Right. And so we had to, we, we always knew like when we made the plans for this stuff, like assume you've got 10% of your workforce available, right? Like you can't depend that everybody's going to be like, cause there's stuff that could be major that we have to deal with. You know, not, not even talking like military, like risk, type of stuff that you have to worry about. We're, we live in North America. We are very lucky that there's very seldom we bump into that kind of thing, but still, you know, power's out. You got young kids. It's, it's a problem. So then I go in and we're there. We're like, no problem. Right. Well, we've got eight hours. So we're going through the plan. Like, how do we, how, well, six hours in, you're like, it's not coming back. We're <sighs> not going to get the power back. So we've got to then start like, let's start planning the shutdown. Cause we've got two hours left. And I swear this is funny. It's like somebody went out and they like tapped the little meter and it goes like tink down to empty. And you're like, oh, because remember when you designed your eight hour recovery, it was two years ago. Well, we've since uh, deployed hundreds of servers, right? racks, new equipment. So this is why your disaster recovery has to be dynamic, right? Your your backup strategy, your everything about data protection has to be dynamic, not even automated. It, at the very least, it's got to be dynamic. Like you've got to make sure you're revisiting it because all of a sudden we said, someone comes into the data center and they said, 
how long will it take you to power everything down safely? Because you, you know, this is back in the days when you had to like shut down physical servers, right? NT yeah. boxes all over the place. I said, well, I said, if we can get the team in here, which we shouldn't take too long, uh, I'd say about an hour and we can safely shut everything down. They said, could you do it in 15 minutes? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, there's no way I could do it in 15 minutes unless they were all here now and we like went for it. And they said, well, let's just say you got 15 minutes because we have, we have 15 minutes. We, we are out of fuel. We have to shut everything down. And so it was literally like, running my fingers down the power switches in these racks wow. and they were the you know the ones that like it does like the smart power down for the server so like and just watch like slowly all these servers start to shut down when the beauty part is because we reduced the load it actually did extend the life cycle so we didn't actually have 15 minutes we had about half an hour once we started to go but it was like that's the reality of stuff. Like when you get to data protection, when you get to this thing, like the stuff that I love about the data that's in the survey, and I've got the, I'll have the link in the show notes as well. People should, could check this out because they can see. And they were like, oh, whoo, I feel like I can go to my CIO and say, see? Yes. When I, when I told you we weren't, right. we aren't really ready. And this is why I'm looking at, alter, you know, multiple solutions. This is why I'm, when we go to the cloud, it's not automatic, right? Just being in the cloud isn't backed up. You know, we've got Microsoft Teams and you think that that's like, oh, okay, well, guess what? You can get rid of stuff, right? Someone can maliciously get rid of content. Like there's no way to get it back out of the box, right? Like stuff like that. It's like, we have to be prepared for it. This is all about preparedness. That's Not right. Necessarily activation, but preparedness. I mean, activating is a different thing because there's a lot of criteria, but like be prepared. Yeah. And I like how you framed that. That would be my hope that people could leverage this survey. It's not a, a vendor specific survey. You know, if you're looking for problems uh, to, to, with solutions, you know, we, we as a provider of Veeam, you know, we'd like to, you know, obviously have you consider us. However, there is not a vendor specific thing at all in any one of those questions. And it's probably going to be the case of where someone that grabs that survey, a few of those things may surprise you just slightly, but the overall themes probably wouldn't. But what it does allow you to do is say, okay, we're not an outlier. We're, you know, some point in the continuum, and as it turns out, 3,000 other organizations are around the globe. And I can go to, you know, my boss or boss's boss to say, hey, you know, those things we've been a little worried about? Well, it turns out they're real, or it turns out other organizations are worried about them too, we should probably take this opportunity to proactively go and investigate that, try to improve our hand. And that's probably the one thing that I always like to say is, you know, you can't do everything, but you can do something. Yeah. And so if a survey like this at least gives you in the ballpark idea of globally where the hotspots are, see if that sounds like your practice, your organization. And if it does, prioritize a couple of things to go after and fix. You know, it's very often the case, like a, a backup modernization. I used to see an organization say, well, we're going to do this backup modernization activity. And so the team did some research and they maybe came out with 10 things that ought to happen. And due to, you know, constraints, maybe management said, well, we don't have the time, we don't have the money, et cetera. We have these other projects. So let's do one and a half of those. Maybe we'll get a little more disk and let's extend the maintenance on XYZ. So management maybe went off and said, we modernized. The technical team said, <laughs> um, 
I was starving and you just gave me a salad. That's not going to feed me for life. Uh, that's just kind of put me on life support to your point about, you know, Hey, we clicked off some of the servers that bought us a little more time. Yeah. That's essentially what happened. Then organizations come back around again, saying we need to modernize what, what happened. Well, what happened was it's not that the technical teams didn't have any idea what to do. It's just, we weren't able to achieve everything that we wanted to, but rather than feeling badly about that, I just say, keep revisiting it to your point about, you know, configuration drift happens. It's a dynamic world. Well, try to keep dynamically improving your hand. And maybe a survey like this can provide a little air cover, maybe yeah. provide a couple ideas and maybe also make you feel like, okay, we're, we're really not that far out of the norm here, but let's also take this opportunity to try to improve our situation. Yeah. And I, it, at the very least, you know, we talked at the start and we used the phrase confirmation bias, which is always an interesting thing. Like, of course, there's certain stuff that will help to feed our, our hypothesis. And, and that's, that's nothing wrong with that. As you said, you know, when the ultimate goal is to continue to learn beyond it and, and look for the outliers and make sure that we're accounting for that in, in yeah. future ways we do things. And it's a great way. Uh, my team ran something we call the multi-cloud state of multi-cloud survey. And it's like three years running and we've got like 900 respondents. And for us, it was huge because you started to get this thing of like over the course of three years, multi-cloud kind of became real, but it was very different than we thought it was in the first year. So it was neat to see this transformation of the way that people perceived their own position, as well as what the meaning of this thing was. And it's, yeah. you're going to get the same thing as you continue to do this, you know, revisit the survey data and, and go back to this audience. It's, that's where the fun is, you know, like we always say, if we, you know, to pick an analyst firm that we all know, well, and we talk about magic quadrants, a magic quadrant isn't any value when you've only got one of them. The point is, where did you move from last time, right? Like, as we look at where we how do we move the needle? And as an organization, what's your matrix of measurement of success across this? And that's why it's a matrix of measurement, not a single point. We're not protected. We are comfortable with 80% of our infrastructure and we are struggling. Like the one thing in my favorite link, it's like a red line that's in there and it says like, there are no challenges which have impacted or will impact my organization's digital <laughs> transformation initiatives. 12%, right? No one's going like, now we're good. We're good, boss. Yeah. <laughs> I love the acknowledgement. Like this is a hard moving target and we've got to do work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, there's a section in, in the report, I call it the algebra section because it's a bunch of numbers. I think technically we call it the metric section, but I, it's almost a scared straight scenario in my mind. And you know, my past life, when I would speak to different organizations, they would say, oh, well, we're, we're, we're very efficient. You know, our teams are really sharp. They do really good stuff. So everybody kind of naturally assumed that their team was better than the average. Turns out that's usually not actually the case. There's a reason why the average is the average or close to it. And if I think about this, I call it the algebra section. If people were just asked to self-report, Right. Okay, what's your backup success rate? Back and that was defined simply by did you get all the data and did you get it in the time frame you expected? Meaning if the nightly backup took one week, well, we're going to call that a failure because it you know, you didn't get the data. If you had to recover the next day, you couldn't because you were too busy backing up the data. So when we asked them, what's your 
success is defined by did he get the bits and did he get it in time? 63% of the time that was working properly. That's, you know, not the best if in the North American area, we use letter grades. That's a D that's actually yeah. kind of a D to borderline D minus, which is meaning almost a failing grade. If you ask the flip side and remember the joke, you can't recover that, which you haven't backed up. So now if you didn't get a good backup, well, then you're already in trouble. If yeah. you did get a good backup, but you're only doing that roughly two thirds of the time, slightly less actually. What was your poisonous tree, as they say, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You get to see these cascading effects, you know, meaning it's a series of, of relations. Well, that next bit was even if all the backup weren't great, exactly one third of the time, the restorers weren't succeeding, meaning they got yeah. all the bits back or they got the bits back in the required amount of time. So you, you put that together and you're like, well, wait a minute, 63 times or 0.63 times 0.66. Uh-oh, that's not good. Yeah. That means 42% of the time we can get data back when we need it to, according to the service levels that we've assigned. That's Let's just round up and let's just say it's roughly a coin flip. Your odds are as good going to Vegas as they are of getting your data back. And yet you have people that are charged with professionally trying to make these systems available. So again, that's not, that's not a vendor. That's not a personal opinion. That is thousands of global people self-reporting their averages. And then those same group of people, they say roughly one out of four servers is going to have an unplanned outage in the next 12 months. Yeah. And we go back to that whole, here are all the many different things that can be behind an unplanned outage. So a lot of bad things happen is the net of that. So I call it the scared straight section, meaning, you know, if there's a lot of problems backing up and a lot of things that can go into making a successful backup challenging. And then from there, if you do get a successful backup, there are things that can go into making a restore, or at least in the time frame you expect it to be challenging. And that's against a backdrop of stuff is going to go down. Stuff is, you know, re rebooting. Stuff is failing to come back up. You know, sometimes you get more nervous about rebooting a system than leaving it on. Uh-oh, yeah. what happens if I, if I, you know, do a power cycle? Is, is that all going to be good here? So just those types of metrics alone, you know, awareness can be curative. Well, part of the cure is just appreciate the reality of your situation. And do that in a context, not of negativity, but of really, I would say, clarity yeah. so that you can now take action to have a positive outcome. Yeah, it it really is the it allows you to be comfortable with your own transparency of the way you run your operation. It's because it's tough, you know. Like so the the scared straight is a, a particularly good analogy that I think everybody only understands this experience once they've felt it firsthand. And when all you do is build Excel spreadsheets and PDFs of how it should go, and you never actually experience an unplanned outage, you can't be honest about how it's going to go. You know, we can do our best, like we can say intellectually, I believe this is the way it's going to go. But the truth is that when you experience it firsthand, and that was it, right? Like when I pulled out of that parking lot, all the plans went out the window. Yeah. And not just because it was like there was a localization effect. And that's the other thing too, as well. I, I often tell people like, well, no problem. Let's recover it to, let's do mirroring to a second site. Well, the second site's down too. Yeah, right. Let's go to the cloud. 
clouds down too. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it's up and you can't right? you can't get to it, right? The right. Network, it's the up and fine. Down. Amazon Amazon East is going crazy. AWS East is fine, but the yeah, but if you can't touch it, no good. Well, in this, if anything, like that's the classic thing, right? If DNS goes down in, you know, Route 53 goes down in US East, you know, like 1A, you know, like you lose access in that particular region to, for some service that ultimately means that network is unavailable. Well, most stuff is there because it's the default when you deploy a new workload into AWS, right? And then people say, this is bullshit. AWS <laughs> needs to pay for this. And you're like, no, read the manual. You knew this was the application deployment pattern. You knew you were building in a single source of network, a single source of storage, a single source of external services. I'm not saying that I'm giving them a pass, but I'm telling you that we have a responsibility as the designers and the architects to build for this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, if we come full circle, Eric, that's, I guess, a concern I would have, meaning do we start to lose best practices mindset and the ownership mindset, meaning we assume, oh, I rented the car. They're guaranteeing the infrastructure. Nothing can go wrong. No, you could still get lost. You could still drive off the road. Someone could still hit your car. An animal could jump out. You know, things can still happen. You'd still need to be fully prepared. And unfortunately, it can be an out of sight, out of mind experience. Oh, we're moving to software as a service. Or we went to, to AWS, which is an incredibly resilient I'll call it a platform, but an end-to-end -end service, really. But to your point, the fine print, I forget if it's section 14 or 15, but if you ever read that language, and they've only updated a little over the last handfuls of years, but they basically say, look, we're not promising that you got data integrity. We're not promising yeah. we could even get your data. We're not promising the data won't be erased, maliciously altered, leaked. You know, obviously those things don't happen, at least with any great regularity whatsoever. But the point is, all we promise is we're going to try to make infrastructure highly available. We're yeah. going to try. It's not a guarantee. That's why we don't owe you something. But you still, if this is your business, you need to be thinking about this in the context of, okay, I'm still the custodian of this data. I may not be doing all the operations myself, but you know the, the phrase, the cloud is just someone else's data center is, is accurate. Now that someone else may be operating in an enormously efficient They're particularly manner. good at it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, they're subject <laughs> yeah. matter experts. So let's not, let's give credit where credit's due, but it also still means, hey, if the business goes down, it's not Amazon's fault. It's your yeah. fault. It's the business's fault. It's, to, it's the manager at the restaurant, to your point that, hey, he didn't burn the meal. He or she has to be the face of the organization to come out and tell the ultimate customer we made a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what I'm excited about is the potential for all of these things. And now like automating the stuff is easier. Recovering to alternate locations like the cloud yeah. now is, is possible. And, and you don't need to run it there full time to recover it there, which is great. So like there's a lot of economical technically sound options that we didn't have when folks like you and I came into this industry and, and we were going back and watching this like, wait a second, LTO2, that's crazy. You're going to be able to put, you know, five terabytes on a single 
tape drive. That's nuts. There's no way, like whatever. Like my mom will say LTL2 is probably like gigabytes, not terabytes for sure. You know, now as we, I think we're probably at LTO4 and LTO5 is maybe, I don't know if it's out or the standards are being written. Like tape is not dead. Yeah, uh, we're closer to 10, right? Yeah, you know, it's like we are, we're getting to the point where, you know, the, all these advancements just make this stuff easier and more, I'll say it's, you know, democratized. Yes, I like that. Than commoditized. I don't, commodity sounds something that as though it's like it lacks in value. I call it democratized because it's broadly accessible. You know, it's not free, it's, but it's, it's available, you know. And so for a brand new business, they can go right to the cloud immediately. They can go right to containerized application infrastructure. They can use SaaS. They can use Office 365. But again, like, like we often have to remind people, running it and it being available is not recoverable. Availability and recovery, recoverability are two vastly different metrics. And I mean, OVH is a, a difficult but real example. I'd not, I don't want to pick on it or ever sound like I'm, I'm choosing them as like, aha, see, you buggered it up, you cloud providers. Like OVH ran this fundamentally incredible, you know, co-located, you know, we've got diversity of, of networks, diversity of storage, power grid, everything else. The whole place lit on fire. Like they had <laughs> no plan for that. And so a lot of people got caught out because literally their, their data burnt down with the data center. They didn't architect for availability beyond the single data center. And I tell people, if, AW, if US East One goes down and your app goes down with it, blame your architect, not Andy Jassy. That's the thing, right? And I guess I'll, I'll use the phrase again, best practice. You know, don't put all your eggs in one basket, meaning make sure you've got other kinds of resiliency mechanisms. That, or maybe a better way to say it is, this is all about risk reduction. Right. In the perfect world, we'd have unlimited resources, whether that was human engineering, money, time, access to equipment, delivery, supply chain, you name it. But obviously, we don't exist in that world. So now it becomes, okay, How it's like a poker player. What can we do with the hand that we've got? How can we try to best maximize it? And obviously, you, you very rarely, oh, these are the cards I dealt and I'm just holding, I'm going with that. If, if you're in that situation, you're probably in a good situation, right? But the reality is, no, I'm needing to adapt. I can make some tiny tweaks. I don't even know if I'm in control of that. Using the card example, whatever card comes up compared to the one that or couple that you submitted, you know, you're just hoping that you can improve your hand. And that I think is the nature of availability. You know, I would just say, I, I'm actually optimistic. We have all of these technologies at our disposal, including tape, still a vital technology, but we have flash. We have increasing amounts of automation. So that'd be my second point. We have this access to technology that is democratized, meaning a guy like me could actually afford to go practically all flash at home. Yeah. It's, it's not a fool's errand anymore. Oh, you must be you know, a real enthusiast, if you're going to go spend all of this money, well, actually, it wasn't that much money. The, yeah. the price gap between, you know, the premium and the, the quote unquote, more normal is not that great anymore. So that's interesting from a democratization perspective, then you get in automation. If we can now 
put some intelligence into this, automate best practices or bake best practices, or at least as much as we can into the system while still having, you know, admins and engineers still at, at the helm, you know, that it's like the, the aircraft or maybe a spaceship is a better example. You know, someone's not hand on the yoke the entire time to, to Mars, you know, there's yeah. automation of all. However, we certainly need those extremely well-qualified individuals to be there in case we have to do any kind of course correction. And then the third piece that gives me optimism is how else can then we go leverage this? For, yep. We want to be, make sure we can react to the rainy day scenarios, meaning the historical recovery availability scenarios, but wow, the opportunity, Eric, if we're just going to spend this time, this money, this infrastructure, building this practice. Thankfully, we're not under attack every single day and having to recover. Thankfully, you know, the business or US one, you know, US East one didn't go down every single day. What else can we do to leverage this? That's the exciting part of my mind. Exactly. And it's and it's funny. I said that I, I often tell people, I said best practices and standard operating procedures are pocket aces you don't always win, but most people can feel confident about their position in the hand and like truly that. being able to survive disaster because of the work that we do to automate the infrastructure. That's bringing a queen seven and taking down pocket aces. That's somebody that be, they know it's a truly human result leveraging technology you know, like we don't necessarily know we've got what we need, but we're going to pull the stuff together based on the techniques that we know we can, as a team, take on. And in the end, uh, it's a beautiful combination of technology and, and human power that will, will bring these things together. Because even the best technology, like you said, it's, you know, if, if it all recovers to one spot or, or there's dependencies that aren't there that aren't going to be met, like it's, it's such a beautiful pairing. And that's why, you know, uh, I'm excited. I'm with you. Like this is, it's kind of great. Every day is, is like the best day to be in technology uh, right? because we've, we've got such, you know, broad access to this stuff this, and it feels good. And especially, you know, as much as we think about, you know, the big enterprises and like we talk about the stuff, like it's, you don't need to be there. Like, it's, like you said, it's, I can be anybody. Yeah has the potential to do this it's and you nailed the story which is we buried the lead amongst us all this is all about risk management that's what business continuity falls under if you go to a financial services team and you say who's handling your business continuity project it's under the risk department not under the it department the program is managed by the risk department because it's a business risk and the ceo has one job you had one job kid that's the, right. the real thing you had one job it was to grow the business while reducing risk amen is that uh, exactly that is it exactly and i think that's the the neat part here that's the the positive part you know that we can make a good impact not just every 30 days when someone wants to restore a file but literally every single day and the time to do it is up front you know yeah. we I will give you one slightly vendor specific thing. You know, at, at Veeam, we like to talk about best practices in terms of protecting data. There's a couple of technologies that, that we do have that are a little unique within that, but it just comes down to best practice. Ensure that the backup was successful. Why? Because there's no better time to go and take 
another action if you discover right away early on, oops, that backup, it seemed like it was successful, but I tested it. I did some automated verification against it, ran some SQL iterators against Microsoft's SQL, and it didn't work. Yeah. Oh, well, that's not the end of the world because I still have the production data to go get a copy of. That is the exact time to learn to take on a different kind of action. I think if we just adopt more and more you know, of that mindset, let's just keep looking for where the holes are and try to shore those up in a way that we can reduce risk that's appropriate for that business workload or that business service. Yeah, don't wait until the boat sink and to decide to ask if the team knows how to swim. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, they built the ark ahead of time. That was key. That was a big part of the successful operation. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is very good, and and so like I said, we'll have links to the uh, to this. In fact, it's an easy URL to remember because and I'll pull it up because I, I had it handy. It was vee.am forward slash dpr twenty one. So it's uh, super easy to find, and it's really good. Like I said, people should just use this as a like it's a great introspective opportunity to look at your own operations and say, okay, cool. You know, where are we against the industry? And that's what I really appreciate about this is that it's not measuring you against your vendor's belief in your competency. It's measuring yourself against the broader industry. And that's right. where the medians and the means and the averages really come together. It's like, as a comparative to other folks that are in a similar business space as me, you know, are, are they as worried as I am? And that's the, the question that's the best to answer. Because no one's fully ready. They're as ready as they can be. But it's like, let's just make sure that we're all doing the right level of risk management and, and become aware. Self-awareness is a fantastic thing because it will happen, you know, and it's about preparedness. It's about risk management. And, you know, I'm excited about it. I love the data. It's, it's really cool because like I said, it brought back a lot of fond and frightening memories. All <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Years of therapy just went out the window after I saw this. <laughs> like I re well, it's, and it's like poker, right? No one remembers the hundred hands you won, but they, everybody knows a bad beat. Everybody remembers <laughs> the moment, the, the feeling you had. They remember every card that fell down on that table. They remember the weather, the day that somebody took them down with a queen seven, like they, some goofy thing. It's, and it just, that stuff sticks. And this is why going to the celebrate lack of preparedness and the need to like think as a collective of how mm. we can be better. This is what this kind of data is for. And it's, it's, I'm, uh, so I'm excited. I, I love anything that I can do, especially with 3,000 data points, like 3,000, uh, you know, respondents. That's a significant pool to draw from to know that you're not alone. <laughs> Yeah, amen. And even if you conclude, hey, we're better than that, that's fine too. Then, But you still probably have something you can go and improve on. But yeah, I think this data protection report, hopefully people really will find it, it valuable. It's, you know, no charge. It's, you owe it to yourself to be informed. That's what I always say. Yeah.
Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Dave, if folks want to get a hold of you online, which they should, because you're a good human and I appreciate spending the time with you. I wish I could have dug in more. Like I wanted to kind of dig into some personal stuff, but you know, this is a hot and fun topic. Uh, so I apologize that I didn't go any deeper into some of the other areas. We'll come back on because I want to talk to you about that row of guitars behind you and then the real good stuff. The real reason we're at work is that we there can you go. our guitars and talk about the ultimate risk management. Remember the old line that said, uh, you leave it in your will, said, please do not let my wife sell my guitars for what I told her I paid for them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Amen. So, uh, yeah, what's the best way if we want to be able to get a hold of you uh, and uh, and the folks at the Veeam team? Yeah, so uh, myself, I'm Backup Dave on Twitter, just like it sounds, Backup, the one word, You're all together. in. You're all in. I love it. <laughs> yeah, same on LinkedIn. You can find me, Backup Dave, on LinkedIn. Veeam, very, very active on social ourselves. Uh, check out either Veeam on Twitter, Veeam, or go to veeam.com. But we do a lot of things that we try to do, uh, and especially during this sort of current time set where we do live streams. Obviously, we do webinars, but I actually encourage people to check out maybe a, a YouTube, LinkedIn live, live stream. We've got a lot of different people, not just myself, a lot of experts that come through, offer different bits of advice, things that you might find useful and if we have any comments or questions, love to hear that too. Love to talk about this stuff. So thank yeah. you for having me, Eric. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely no shortage of fantastic content and fantastic people, uh, which is why I'm, I'm a huge fan of the team. I'm, not li I'm literally married to the team. Uh, so I, I kind of have a vested interest in the success of the company. But uh, but I mean, yeah. it's like we, we believe in... In, in what you're doing, which is pretty cool. So I'm excited by it. So wherever you, so that one day, 10 years down down the road, you're gonna have to find another backup company when, you know, when you've said, okay, Veeam's grown to the point where I'm like, I wanna do something new. You're gonna have to have to change that Twitter handle. <laughs> there you go, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, all good. Awesome day, thank you very much. Hey, thank you, Eric. And thanks everyone for listening.